In this episode, we benefit from secondhand torture. I think a student brought fish in for snack day. And we get another Outlast ear cleaning. Oh, what's up with the ear cleaning? My goodness. Don't they have Q-tips? Thank you for coming back from our replay reviews of Happy Horror Month. My name is Leah. And my name is Kathy. We are two friends who are here to replay review and analyze your favorite video games. And since Kathy has never seen the games before, it helps me view them through her fresh eyes. Almost like I'm discovering them again for the first time. We hope it'll be a similar experience for you. Still no signs of Lynn. She's been tooken. She's been tooken. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. Let's get started. <laughs> Let's get started. Scene one. Blake is chased into a room where it looks like a woman is being held as a prisoner of sorts. She has no reaction to him being there. She's very out of it. And he records this and says, This is where the magic happens. Chairs for an audience to watch. I'm very disturbed by that. Yeah, it's... Yeah. An audience? I... It's <laughs> really disturbing. It is disturbing. And then just on the other side of this room, there's a big pit with spikes and bodies in it. After you've been, you know, like, uh, used up, I, I guess. Do you get tossed into this pit? Or it's the threat that's looming there. The pit has like i guess serves two purposes is that one probably when they see there's no value left in you they probably toss your body there but also it's used as a way to keep you under their control saying that they're going to threaten to throw you overboard it's I mean, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's the trash can <laughs> i think really i think harsh, it's just the trash yes. can <laughs> it's really harsh i mean everything they're doing here is is harsh so on the other side of this pit, the trash can, there's like a little podium thing with a note. And this note is basically someone remembering not being able to save a drowning victim. And they say, please spare me the suffering of such forced dreams, even when I do not sleep. Some choice phrases in this note are forced dreams and cannot keep watching him drown. This is when I started to have a theory. I feel like it sort of supports... The original engine from Outlast. Yes, I was the, the Wall Rider engine. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's that basically feeds on or needs terror, horror to infiltrate the host properly. So, are these forced dreams, even when I do not sleep, is this a method of prepping a host for a sorts of Wall Rider engine? Even if it's not the same one, maybe it works the same way. I think it's either prepping or it's just pure experimental purposes i was also thinking that these dreams we don't even know if it is reality or if it's dreams like for a lot of these victims i don't think they know what the difference is between what's actually happening and what's been planted in their minds well that's a good question are these scripts like from warnicky in the first game or are these just dreams of bad memories that really happened because in the helicopter at the start of the game Blake references Jessica and Lynn acts like she knows her. That makes me think that it's real things that have happened to people. And they're just like forcing them to replay these memories, but in a dream. So is that maybe an improvement of sorts that they made over the first engine? Although I don't think it's from a science perspective. I think it's from a more of a like a religion kind of standpoint. The way how 
Father Martin really believes in something and really pushes that on to anyone who's willing to listen and seeing with Noth with him considering himself as like a, a Papa Noth and really pushing that religion. I don't think it has anything to do with someone at Warnicky's level, but more so Father Martin's level. No matter what's going on, I do definitely believe that Noth is basically a cult leader, manipulating people, controlling people for his own benefit. Even if he is believing it, he's doing a lot of, of what's happening. He's definitely controlling the situation. My next note is just like, do you have any notes on the next note, which is about the paper is precious? Oh, yeah. I was wondering, is that another punishable act and therefore like another reason to torture someone? It sure sounds like it. So this one's pretty short. I'll just read it. It says, Paper is precious. Any use other ways than the copying of the Gospel of Noth must be with the given permission of a deacon. Theft or wasting of paper will be met with blood punishment. So to me, that sounds like uh, could, it could mean death. It could mean you're thrown in the trash can. Very controlling. Very controlling. Should we try to figure out Why? Why are they controlling paper? Is this so that nobody can communicate with each other, with the outside world? It's not like they have much technology going on in that area. I mean, sure, there's batteries hidden everywhere. <laughs> but still, there isn't much technology. And without that, like, how else do they communicate? I feel like mm -hmm. paper's the only way. And I also do feel like it's a way to kind of regulate what gets in and out of that area. I also find it really ironic that they used an entire sheet of paper to write four lines about not yeah. wasting paper. <laughs> All right, so continuing on on his journey, he enters a... It's a church, but it's like set up as a schoolhouse. He films the blackboard, which says, don't be afraid, you're going to heaven. And as he's filming it, the desks fly open, which is very spooky. In this recording, when he rewatches it, he says... Going to heaven. God. Before they killed the children. You should have loved me. I... What am I doing? So weird. At this point, it seems like the use of the paper is more of a journal for these people. And I'm starting to wonder, are people controlling the amount of paper because they want to limit the amount of journaling and documentation of what's going on in their mindset? I'm thinking back to our theory about it being more for like the morphogenic engine, there needs mm -hmm. to be more paper documenting it. And maybe we just haven't stumbled across it yet. But I'm almost wondering if the limit of paper is because they want to limit people noting down what they're feeling and what they're thinking. Well, that's a fair point. In the first game, we find, you know, we are a journalist and we find all this documentation about what's been going on. And I have no doubt that that sort of helps bring down that operation, even though we know... It sounded like they were going to just pick up and try to continue. So yeah, maybe if this is a Murkoff thing, they're trying to prevent that mistake of just leaving this paper trail. So that could be part of it. But my other question is, if that's the case, did this order come from Papa Noth or did it come from someone at Murkoff? Or is Noth a, a Murkoff employee? So upstairs in the schoolhouse, it seems like there is this like lesson plan. And so it says, aim, the children should not fear their duty, but celebrate it as guaranteed entrance to heaven. And then remember, there is no pain in heaven. Papa gave you life, and so your life is his. God gave you life, and so your life is his. You may not know that you yourself are the enemy. And that's where it gets interesting. 
we've heard a lot of reference to the enemy. What are you thinking that the enemy is? I feel like the enemy is probably something again that they're just trying to pin it on someone. They need a like a a scapegoat. Yeah. That's my thought is that the enemy is someone that they just use to justify all the different torture. Okay, so then let's talk about the next document, which we find just about mm-hmm. a minute later. And it says, Mommy, Miss Carson said I could not tell you what they're going to do, but she did not say I could not write it. So please do not let them kill me. I love you and I love Daddy. Juliana. So they're, so killing, ch- they're killing children, right? Like yeah. systematically <laughs> killing children? We do see a lot of babies killed, so why are we surprised that they're also killing children and adults so they're killing anyone from the ranges of being like pretty much a fetus in the womb to grown adults yeah so (laughs) if they want to kill you they kill you that's what it sounds like i agree i think though at this point it it seems kind of systematic though with the children because if we Mm -hmm. go back to the last document it's like you may not know you're the enemy and this is a a school lesson plan are they just killing children that, like, you're showing signs that you could be the enemy, so you gotta go into the trash can. See you later. But that also means they have to predefine what the enemy is and what kind of signs represent the enemy. Yeah, based off of the context of what we've seen so far, I think the enemy is the Antichrist, which mm-hmm. is what they're now thinking that Lynn is pregnant with. Mm-hmm. I don't know what, like, the signs would be. Or why you decide to kill, like, which children? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is a lot to just be casually talking about, but... <sighs> we should have yeah. added some trigger warnings to this. I mean, I-, I said that this game was banned <laughs> in the first episode in Australia. I mean, I feel like that's <laughs> that's a pretty good warning, right? Yeah, I guess we'll need to add some more. It says murder of babies. Child sacrifice. Children. We'll probably get flagged just for me saying that right now. <laughs> Blake continues outside of the schoolhouse and enters an area where he's harassed again by Marta. And during this chase, he finds a few documents, but one to make note of is chapter 10 of the gospel in air quotes. So I marked that in paragraph four. It said the Lord gave to Ezekiel more wives than brothers. And we also know from previous letters that Noth called himself as Ezekiel. And so I'm wondering this gospel with air quotes is something that Noth wrote and he wrote this line just to justify him being able to kill people. So that's the flip side, but I'm curious. And either way, I feel like this sentence probably is being taken literally and he's just using it as another way to justify murder. First of all, I think you're right. I think that all of these writings are basically a way for him to just further control people to allow him to do whatever he wants Mm -hmm. second note i have is this has to have been going on for a long time or this process had to have come so quickly because if you get to this point of power where you can write scriptures about yourself and then people believe it i mean that has to take time i think it's enough that there are kids and young women probably born and raised in that period but at the same time i feel like what's a good indicator is the people who are sick and staying there though i mean it can't be that long because they probably would have already 
died, but it also depends on when they started getting sick. But another thing mentioned in this document is, from your nation the enemy shall emerge. And based off of the context of this, <laughs> this, it's about like Ezekiel Noth and his wives. So is it his child, one of his children that will be the enemy? And is does that mean that every child attending that school is his child? And that's why they're just, hey, you look suspicious, time to die. So <laughs> is this just justifying? Because here's my question. Is he just insane? Because it seems like right now he's writing this to just do what he wants, you know, have a lot of wives and all this this uh, stuff that he wants to do. But that it gets kind of weird after that because like okay, you can you can see someone wanting to manipulate people into being able to have that be acceptable, but then to like have and murder children, that's a whole that's a whole nother level. So my question is why is that just mental illness is that like what what how does that come into all of this i can't remember at what what point you said this but i do think that the reason why noth calls himself as papa noth is because he sees himself as the father and he sees someone like a like a god where you all are from me and that kind of goes back to Mm -hmm. earlier in one of the the notes but i also do think that kids like Juliana, she's smart enough to see through things and she knows it. And maybe that's why they're killing children is because they know the children have outsmarted them or will Mm. be outsmarting all the other grown adults who aren't under the spell. And he's just Mm. killing off anyone who isn't under his spell. Yeah, that makes sense. They're they're killing the free thinkers, the people who aren't easily manipulated. (laughs) Yeah. The the poor children. That makes sense. Anything else before the document that Val wrote? Did you have any notes on that? Uh, I wrote, Val needs to calm the heck down. <laughs> I think I wrote it multiple times that Val needs to calm down. Same with Marta. Oh, yeah. They both need to calm down. It sounds like Val is trying to find the name of their god. So the opposite of, of Noth. So that's interesting because we don't really have an answer. So could it be, if there's no answer, could it be something created by Murkoff? I'm hesitant to say so because based on everything we see in this place, yes, there are some places with electricity, but otherwise it's so shabby that I don't even know how Murkoff could <laughs> be doing their experiments in this kind of location without setting some kind of home base. Mm-hmm. And if they did have a home base, I doubt it's something that we missed. I It would have been extravagant. Okay, so follow-up question. In the helicopter on the way here, they talk about this woman that had high levels of mercury in her blood, and they think that she had to have been downriver from, I think they said, like, pretty heavy industrial mm-hmm. areas. So how does that factor in, or what does that add to your train of thought? Oh, okay. So I think I want to... That's actually a really good point. I, I'm going to pivot away from all my <laughs> different theories, and my current theory is that this little village probably is located at the bottom of Mount Massive, And then that also is what triggers the plane crash is because of all the crazy electricity static. And so while it's not that Murkoff is dictating all the different experiments happening, it's more of just like a product of everything that happened there. And it's indirect reason for all the stuff to happen. Okay, so building off of that, one of our running theories from the first game based off of a document we find pretty early on is 
sort of that the treatment is leaking out because there's mention of environmental contamination. So could this be an example of that environmental contamination, that this is just the treatment, the engine leaking out and then affecting this village? I think so. I think that's a big part of it. The other part is that maybe Noth was either a patient or one of the earlier people who's experimented or got affected by all the things that were leaking. Mm-hmm. And that's he's probably one of the, the OG zombies, I guess. Yeah. Well, because you're right. He, there are quite a few similarities between him and Father Martin. So could he be a, a further evolved Father Martin, so to speak? So getting closer to the church, Blake finds a note. And it's kind of like a like a song. I don't know. Like, what did you have notes on this? Do you want to sing it? <laughs> I do no. not. Um, there's a line that says, the enemy waits in a womb unknown. It's referring to a baby, and that's the enemy, and they're killing the pregnant woman. And this is really what we've established already, that it's just another way to be able to kill off children. But I am confused because if they keep killing off kids and everything, they're just going to die out at the generation they have. We're now inside the chapel. We've just entered, and there's another document. And this is from Laird Byron. As recorded by Nick Trembley. We'll meet these two in a minute. And this is to Sullivan Noth. They mention sacramental, both for drinking and communion and for comfort from our pains and disinfection of our sores. What is the sacramental? Is this the grape that was referenced last time? Which, like, could it be wine? And what was the thing that he promised to give his flock? Isn't there a sentence in there saying that something about promising to give something to his flock? He gave copies of the Gospels to Mm. his flock. To those that have brains and eyes still intact so that they may read. I don't know. I don't know what that means. So, yeah. um, Inside the chapel, we meet a man named Seth. And it doesn't look like he is in a very good situation. He's tied to a wheel. And then eventually some people start entering the church and Blake hides in a confessional. And this is where we see Noth and some of his goons torturing Seth's wife, Mary, I'm assuming, in order to get him to tell them where Val has taken Lynn. It's kind of like a happy, happy coincidence that Blake is here to hear this. Blake's not going to get any clue or know even where to look. So I feel like you have to cut Blake some slack and give him some extra hints on where his wife is. Yeah. Should he have killed him, though? Should Blake have killed him? Blake knew what was going to happen to the guy if he didn't die, so it's either quickly kill him or let him die painfully. But I don't think Blake has killed anyone at this point. And then Noth has a line. He says, She will bear her filthy yield before dawn. We have only a few hours to find her and kill her and save this paradise from hell everlasting. So my first question is, okay, but what paradise? Because this sure does not seem like a paradise, and he says this paradise. And also how, how already is she going to give birth? I feel like they planted a baby in it, not like a seed or a fetus or anything, but an actual child in her stomach. I have a lot of confusion around this topic because it seems like in many cases it's Noth's child. So either he put a, he literally put an intact baby in there or he put his seed, as we keep being disgusted by that term, 
in there. If that's the case, how is it already? Is this the side effect that we learned about in Whistleblower, where female workers were experiencing false pregnancies? I'm thinking that everyone's just dreaming that they have kids. and, and You know what I mean? Like, how easy it is for Blake to be transported back and thinking that he sees Jessica and everything. That's really easy to blur the lines between reality and dreams. I'm wondering if women are also getting pregnant thinking it's like reality, but it's a dream. Yeah, well, that's the interesting part because clearly everyone else is on board with them being pregnant. But let's revisit a document from Whistleblower that talks about these pregnancy side effects. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read one paragraph of this document. At the time of Ms. Cho's termination, the psychosomatic effects of the morphogenic engine on female employees and patients had been well established. Already more than seven female employees and patients had reached fictitious half-term pregnancies in a matter of weeks before miscarrying the non-existent children, five of them fatally. FEMA employees were moved to higher floors in the facility, then to other buildings, and eventually entirely off the Mount Massive facility. So when they say non-existent children, do we know it's non-existent at that time, or was it, has it always been non-existent? So I don't know if this is your question exactly, but it sounds like this literally kills them. So, like, there's there's no child there, but everything else is going through the motions in their body and their mentally to the point where they die from it. That's pretty harsh. This is a non-existent child, but we know that there are real children being born here and being systematically murdered. So maybe the enemy is one of these non-existent children. Or is everyone under so much delusion that even though these children are non-existent, they see them and they think they're real? They want it bad enough that they think it's real. They're trying to will it to be true. Mm -hmm. But I also do think that maybe at some point they all were pregnant because it seems like Noth is really into raping all those yeah. victims. So we do eventually learn through this torture that Lynn is in the mines. She was taken to the mines. So Blake, having overheard this, starts heading in that direction. We enter a room with coffins, seemingly containing children. And I have just a few questions about this. Number one, is this the same woman that we've seen multiple times wandering around and sort of like singing and chanting? Who else could it be? I mean, at the same time, though, a lot of women could be doing that, so it's really hard to to justify that it could be the same because that kind of action in that kind of environment is very normal. Question number two is, are those real dead children? And then if the answer to both these questions are yes, then is this woman wandering around and collecting dead children? I think she's PTSD enough to not know if they're dead or not. That she just wants to do good. I mean, they have to get there somehow, right? <laughs> So after we leave the creepy baby mortuary room, we enter this area where we have to kind of evade Marta, and we find a document written from Noth to Marta. So my first thought was, who is Marta to Noth? What exactly is their relationship? Is it defined? I feel like Noth is saying things that could apply to any person who's helping him out there. 
And so I'm curious, really, their point of view is what does Marta think that she is to him and mm-hmm. what he is to her? And uh, this is just not doing more manipulation, saying that, hey, it's okay if you can turn into like a crazy axe later and, and like a <laughs> like stone cold killer because I need you to be that. And once you're yeah. done, I'm just going to discard you into the trash bin. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good point. What is the relationship? Because as an outsider, it seems pretty clear to us that he's just manipulating her into mass murder because he's mad at Val and Val's followers. And I think it also establishes the way Noth's mind work and how he manipulates people to do what he wants. He does seem smart in a troubling kind of way, but also in this in this document, there's a very troubling line. And it's right at the beginning. It says, Dearest Marta, my best beloved, most trusted, my intimate companion, since your childhood. He is a child predator and a groomer. Right. Come come again? Since your childhood? Not since our childhood. That would be less creepy. A little creepy still, but less. Which begs the question, though, how old is Not then? And how long have... How long has he been in power? Right? How long has this been going on? And I feel like without knowledge of how quickly, like if this is a Murkoff thing, if it's runoff, without knowledge of how quickly this sort of happens, it's hard to know how long this has all been here. But that's kind of why I like the contamination theory is this could have been a a long process and we're just now like this could be a multi-generational, you know, contamination thing because we don't know how quickly a Murkoff found out that the project was leaking and so that would make sense but we also know blake just got here and he's affected pretty severely already so maybe it does just work that fast i was gonna say maybe not is using that speed to his advantage of getting lynn pregnant but here's where the issue is with some of our theories is just even the line of since your childhood that would have to make marta a, a child at some point right she certainly does not look young. <laughs> we'll say that. So still trying to get to the mines, Blake jumps through a window and is immediately transported back to the school, where he is faced with some disturbing graffiti, which he films, and results, of course, in another reverse audio clip when he watches it back. So are you ready to hear that reverse audio clip? Mm-hmm. I am weak. But you are strong for me, and generous. You gave me life. You gave me talent. That one's pretty clear, right? Yeah. It's creepy, though. It's very creepy. He says, I am weak, but you are strong for me, and generous. You gave me life. You gave me talent. What kind of talent are we talking about? (laughs) Right. What talent, and how does it play in (laughs) to any of this at all? Because this is Blake's memories, right? So is this just something from Blake's past? Or does this have any connection to what's going on in this village? I don't think it's a connection, but it's uh, the village definitely is the cause of it. I feel like the village is the reason why he's having these dreams. Maybe it's not that the village can control the dream, but it maybe chooses your, your worst fear or your biggest nightmare or your biggest regret. And it just broadcasts that and so 
everyone is going to be having bad dreams, but about different things. Okay. I have something here for you that might change things up quite a bit for you. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to tell you. So when we review these these recordings that Blake takes at the school, there's almost always that reverse voice and there's always the static, right? That doesn't show the actual thing that we saw. It shows static. And there is something that pops up in the static. Quickly, you have to catch it. I'm scared. <laughs> I'm going to show you what pops up. I don't understand what I'm looking at. What is that? <laughs> well, let me ask you. Does it to you look anything like this? Oh, my God. <laughs> Leah. It's the Murkoff logo. You're a genius. What? The Murkoff logo appears in the static of the Blake's static. recordings when he is in this other place. The static is what they hear before they see the wall rider. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm just... I'm, yeah. So does this mean that Murkoff is, in fact, involved, whether directly mm-hmm. or indirectly? Definitely, 100%. Where's Blake and what is he filming? I think he's trying to film the wall rider or something like that. Or his biggest, his worst dreams, aka the equivalent of patience and the wall rider. But you can't really film something that isn't reality. So we've seen a couple times where he sort of comes out of these visions, we're going to call them, and is like crawling through a tree trunk or walking through a door. So it kind of seems like he's still been navigating in this village. But if that's the case, wouldn't he also, when he's filming these things in the school, be just be filming around the village? And if that's the case, why is there no footage of the village? Why is it static? Maybe it's a radio frequency kind of thing. And that's what crashes the plane because planes need to use some kind of radio frequency thing. And it just messed it up. And same with this videotape, which... I don't understand, though, because if that's the case, he shouldn't have been able to record everything else, right? Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be just something's yes, something's no. So I'm tempted to say it's because of the radio frequency that is jamming things up. But at the same time, I already invalidated my own theory because we see him recording other details. Well, not necessarily, because let's remember those blasts of light mm-hmm. and... One of the first times we see that, we then see all these villagers who were acting, I mean, normal is a relative term, but <laughs> they were acting normal for Outlast, you know. And then when this blast occurs, they all are affected, remembering things. So could these blasts be these radio frequencies that you're talking about, and therefore they're temporary, they're stronger when this blast occurs, and then they fade over time until the next blast? Still in the school, Blake finds a hangman game that he says Jess and Lynn used to play. And after solving a kind of irritating puzzle that really does not give you even a hair of leniency in winding this thing up, he sees that the word is unforgivable, and he says, seems about right. So this seems to pretty clearly support that Blake feels guilty or even responsible. Are you agreeing with that? I think so. Okay. We'll bottle that one for now. I have a kind of a big question, and mm-hmm. this is something that has been bothering me forever. So there's like, this something seems to be attached to Blake while he's in the school. We see like, I don't, it looks like a shadow or like a giant spider web, and I'll 
play for you this little clip here. Yeah, I'm going to slow down the playback speed okay. to half so that you can kind of get a better look at this thing. But it kind of looks like the wall rider is attached to him. Did you see that? You can see me reacting to it. Yeah. Definitely is the wall rider. That's scary. It scared looks kind of like too. the wall rider, right? I this is my second time watching it and it still scared me. The first time I watched it, it caught me off guard. It's weird. There is a spot. Let me pause it when I get to a certain spot where it kind of looked like you could see more detail. Because at first we just see like this hand, see? right? Hand. And that's kind of weird. But then you weird. see this blurriness to him. So yeah. it's almost like he went through you but pulled back. Yeah. And so then here's this thing where it looks like a butt ton of hands. There's like four hands right there. Do you think the wall rider is trying to stop him from going forward? Maybe the wall rider is trying to do good things and... And, and again, depending on the timing, if this is really Miles. Because it seems a lot like the wall rider, right? It's just a very similar behavior in like the movement and the, the visuals. The static, too, of the, like the blurriness and everything. Yeah. But the wall rider that we've seen isn't black shadows, though. It looks more just like, sort of like a person, but like skeletal, right? But mm -hmm. this one looks a little bit more... Do you think this is the tongue monster? I do, because let's go back to to normal speed where... Because the tongue monster has multiple tongues, right? And this has multiple arms. And I think it does have multiple arms, actually. He is really freaky. So is the shadow him? Do we agree it sort of... The thing that's on him sort of behaves like the wall rider, where it, like, floats around, Maybe kind of? Maybe this is the wall rider's cousin. Yeah. And so my question is, if he's in this realm, whatever this is, where he's at the school, does that make him able to see the wall rider in a more physical form? We're just going to call it the wall rider for now. The tongue monster? Yes, because I think it's something you can only see when you're not in reality. I think we're onto something. I don't know what else to say at this point, other than it seems sort of wall rider-y, but not exactly the same. So scene two, we're back. We've made it back to real life. Continuing to try to find these mines, which are apparently very far away. He films a bridge, but he also finds a document near the bridge that is very informational for us. It, it answers a lot of questions. Definitely there's syphilis. There's STDs going around. Mm -hmm. And he says, I am burning with the signs of the syphilis and I'm afraid I will be sent to live with the scald. I think this answers a lot of our questions, which is, yes, STDs and specifically syphilis is going around, which ties back to the penicillin that Noth has been lying about. And everyone who is sick with it gets sent to this area, the Scald. And here's the thing, though. Not everyone in the Scald are females. No. And it also, actually, quite a big thing to note about this is clearly Noth has some sanity left and some knowledge of the real world because he sends people out to go get this medication but doesn't tell them what it's for but he knows what it's for so clearly he has some some knowledge of what he's doing when he's manipulating these people right like he's not even though he's insane he still is not necessarily to the level of like a wall rider patient that we saw in outlast one i think it's also that he wants to keep them relying on him and not relying on modern day technology or medication or just anything modern day and you need me. 
and you need to consider me as your god because without me, you're going to die because of the disease that I gave everyone. Right. And we'll learn just a little bit later on that he, the line that he's feeding them about what this is, is it's like a spiritual disease. And so it's even blaming them for not being good enough. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the punishment you get, essentially, but it's not from him. Then on the bridge, Blake experiences a swarm of locusts that increase in intensity until he is knocked off of the bridge that he's crossing. And this is the point where I started to recognize that these are signs of the biblical apocalypse. And the birds falling out of the sky is one of them. This is one of them. We'll see more continuing on. My question is if these are signs of the apocalypse... They're occurring when these blasts are occurring, and are we thinking that these blasts are then, now that we have more knowledge of Murkoff's involvement, are they a, a figment of Murkoff that they're sending out? This whole village is sort of like preparing for the apocalypse, trying to prevent it because the Antichrist is a big part of that. So is this whole village under the manipulation of Murkoff, and that's why they're sending these signs of the apocalypse, which are then affecting the people? slightly off from that my theory is everything but it's actually not using Murkoff as his tool to help him continue his power with the people so yes that all the control is there but it's not really Murkoff's doing it's not using Murkoff as a tool to help control the people okay so then do you think there could be like other villages like this nearby are these just mm -hmm. tests maybe like each I village so. is a test i think it's that if the morphogenic engine leaked elsewhere maybe there's also another testing ground but if it all leaked towards this one area then i think it would just be this facility because with that theory it needs the parts of morphogenic engine to start uh like a good area good geographic area to land on Mm -hmm. And so in this case, I do think that it's just this location since we haven't heard about any other places that it's getting contaminated. So, yeah, these locusts knock Blake off of the bridge and he's upside down in a tree and we see these guys and they kill somebody. Blake is able to free himself from the tree and he's wandering around. And again, I just haven't been to like every part of Arizona, but I feel like there's too many trees and too much water, too much grass for this to be Arizona. Like, it just doesn't look like Arizona to me. Blake eventually finds himself with all the scald in this area. It's really quite gross. There's people vomiting all over you, peeling skin off each other's back, I think. Um, it's pretty gross. I just, there's no way that Blake doesn't have an STD after this, right? Like, he d dives into a pool that someone just peed into. There's blood everywhere. With open wounds. Yeah, like, he he has to have one by now, right? But Probably stole some of that penicillin. So after making it out of the scald area, Blake uh, runs into the disturbing arrow-shooting duo. And this is Laird and Nick, who we've seen a few documents about so far. And they chase him into a structure, which is when Blake once again is taken back to the school. He's in a locker, and I think a creepy guy is looking at him or looking for him. And then Blake sees Jessica, who seems to be leading him to something. Most likely an email that we find sent from a guidance counselor to a father, Porcari, Porsari, 
Basically, the contents of this email is that Father Lauermilch suggested to the guidance counselor that Jessica should not go on an upcoming field trip because she is basically a flight risk due to an unhappy home life. Crazy theory out there. I think Jessica might be related to Noth in a very distant way, like Rainchild's child. Again, depending on age and everything, and they don't know exactly what or how. Okay. Well, because he's a, a shitty father. <laughs> so the, the boot fits. We have another recording. He films the room sort of morphing and getting, like, gross. It looks like there's skin mm-hmm. or something organic coming out of the walls and everything. Are you sure it's organic? <laughs> it looks organic. He films that, and then we hear another reverse recording, so I will play that for you now. You have the music, the mathematics, and love. Those fleeting moments within the seraphs in which music and math become the same thing. So music, math, and love. The gift of music and mathematics and love. Those fleeting moments with the tender sounds of which music and math become the same thing. What does that mean? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So is there like a... A way to create music by using, like, math to, like, create the notes. I think you just count. You just count beats, and that's the closest I can do. Or, like, beats per measure. Mm-hmm. It might be... It might be that. Um, I really don't know, is my response. Blake continues to chase after Jessica, which leads him to climb into the ceiling, at which point he wakes up, in quotes, again, back into the real world. And he's almost immediately captured by this duo who think he is a messiah and they hang him on a cross. And that was a lot. So I'm going to pause and wait for your reaction. At this point, I was like low key panicking because we know what's next (laughs) is that they're going to nail his hands to it. And I'm glad you told me I didn't have to look because I couldn't stomach that. It's pretty intense. It also sounds like they want to eat him at some point, and some point later on, someone tries to take a bite out of him. And then they think that the camera is his gospel that they've been waiting for. They leave, and Blake is able to disgustingly rip his hands off of the cross. But his captors soon realize that he's missing and start to track him down. So as he's on the run, he does fairly quickly recover his camera, And then as soon as he looks through the viewfinder, he finds himself once again back at the school. So this is a very quick turnaround. Almost back to back, he's back in the school. Do you have any thoughts on why it could be occurring more often? I think he's getting closer to what's giving him the ability to travel between reality and his dreams. Like we know he's running towards something and maybe that something is what's going to give him the ability to shift between realms, I guess. Okay. Another theory we had was like the blast could be some like Mm -hmm. radio frequency, something that signals these brain issues, Mm -hmm. (laughs) whatever's happening. But also if we go back to the whistleblower document about like the the pregnancies in just a couple weeks, could this also just be a time related thing? So could this this whole like playing out of the apocalypse essentially? Is this a timed event? And as you get closer to the end all of this kind of crazy stuff starts becoming more more frequent. 
At first, I thought it was related to physical geographic location that triggers it. But the more mm-hmm. I'm starting to think about it with the everything that's happening, the more I'm starting to think that he s- triggers the the switching of the reality by himself. Like it's a it's a thought process thing, and it's like a a timing thing of of it versus a physical geographic kind of trigger. Okay. I don't know if that makes sense. So like and he he'll just like have a memory of it or yeah or maybe whatever Murkoff's doing is just making those memories come closer to the surface, mm-hmm. and maybe the longer you're exposed to whatever that is, the more your memories come up. Mm-hmm. Back in the school again, he also, I mean, there's not a whole lot that happens in this one to be honest, but he films again this like veins, the stuff that looks like it would be on a body on the walls and everything. And it just looks like some kind of weird flesh. And so my question to you is, could this stuff that he's seeing, could it be like morphogenesis from the, the morphogenic engine, like in his eyes, but he's seeing it in on things or because we know that that affects like organic, you I know what I mean? I don't think it's his eyes. I think it's part of his, it's part of the dream world and that the vision is that those things are are morphing and that's what he sees so it's not necessarily him it's what's in that dream world okay so i guess my main question then is is it brought on by the morphogenic engine because we know it affects like cells and cell structure Mm -hmm. i think so i think indirectly because of the the leaking okay and then that would be why he can see it when he's in this Mm -hmm. world okay so recording this once again weird fleshy globs we get another reverse recording which i will share to you now you share my gifts with the children who may be able to take my meager talents and turn them to glory you want it again <laughs> yeah you share my gifts with the children who may be able to take my meager talents and turn them to glory the beginning is a little hard to understand, mm-hmm. um, but I think you can still get the meaning. But this is what I hear is, you be share my gifts with the children who may be able to take my meager talents and turn them to glory. Be share means to share across and distribute, which is why I feel like it fits in here because he's talking about giving his talents to like multiple children. Do you think the talent is referring to the ability to switch between reality and dreams. Is that the talent? I don't know. Because didn't he mention talent in one of the last ones too? Uh, I don't what did think he so. Say? It was about the math, love, and music. Yeah, before that one. You gave me life, you gave me talent. So I don't know um, what the talent is but it's been mentioned twice which is kind of interesting Mm -hmm. anyway again cryptic a little unsettling but also in the school blake hears a phone ring eventually tracking it down and when he answers he hears a man's voice say hello hello oh thank god you're alive i need you to stay calm we're going to get you help we'll get you out of there i want you to find a place to hide Someplace safe where you can remember the taste of her kiss when you felt her neck break, you diseased cocksucker. And then at which point a tongue comes out of the phone and licks him and then tries to strangle him. I don't know what your reaction to this is, but I have a lot of questions. I'm thinking like, what the f- 
fair reaction. There's no way that this is not Andrew Earlicker on the other end of this phone, right? <laughs> I mean, speaks volumes of the of where he decides to hide the tongue. Hide? <laughs> I mean, he purposely positioned his tongue to be near the phone so when his ear gets close, like, he... Oh. Yeah. He set the trap to be able to lick the ear, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. He mentions someone being kissed and their neck breaking. Are we pretty sure that this is reference to Jessica? That's actually a good point. I didn't think of that. I Yeah, I think so. Okay. And so then second question is, who is on the other end of this phone? Could it be a first responder? Because it kind of starts out that way, like, thank God you're alive. But at the same time, it kind of sounds like they know he's in there and they know who he is. I have two main thoughts. The one is that it's a trap they're trying to lure him into false hope, saying that, oh, stay there, it's going to be okay. And then, like, yeah, no, it's not okay. So I think it's, like, to kind of get him to stay on the phone and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the other thought is that it's them, the, the little quick switching between dream and reality where maybe he started hearing something in reality but then it quickly flipped over into dream thing and that's why the message got took a 180 mm-hmm. in the last flashback we'll call it he saw an email that was not his that he either would have had to have stumbled across back in time to know it's there or it was somehow put in his brain so if he's able to see emails that aren't his could he also receive phone calls that aren't his like is this phone call even meant for him or is it meant for whoever's office this is? Wouldn't that make it creepier if it was referring to Jessica, who is a schoolgirl, and it's meant for someone else? Mm-hmm. And it, it implies that it seems like the kisses and the, the thing with Jessica's, they're related. I don't know. It would seem weird. But then, I mean, this entire show, it's like, <laughs> you have a freaking child molester. So, I mean, anything's possible. <laughs> anything's possible. So after this disturbing phone call, I really, my my theory that I want to be true is that on the other end of this is Andrew Ehrlicher, a huh? Murkoff employee. <laughs> but after this phone call, the tongue monster chases Blake, who then sees Jessica run and hide into a locker. And then he hides in it too and is again transported back to reality, I guess. He's still running, trying to avoid this creepy duo. And as he's wandering around, he hears multiple people saying things like, the grave is empty. And we hear this phrase repeated multiple times, which reminds me of the first game because we heard lots of repetitive lines. So could this whole thing be a script from Murkoff? Sort of like what we know Warnicky was feeding to patients? It's possible, but I don't think it's likely because it seems like a lot of work and effort and we haven't really seen anything else that really belongs to Murkoff besides that M. We haven't really seen anything else that's Murkoff related so I'm really hesitant to say that it's something that they scripted. Okay. So we're going to skip ahead a little bit to sort of give some more context to this question. So first of all the, the creepy duo does eventually catch Blake and bury him alive but he's thankfully easily able to bust out Along the way, he finds another note, and it almost seems like Laird, who we know has written some, well, he's written some notes and maybe written some some of the gospel as well. 
It seems like Laird is writing a new chapter of the gospel about Blake because there's a line in it where he says, I see a cloud of insects bearing down on a man, the redeemer of the scald, of who Ezekiel has spoken. So it sounds like they're definitely talking about Blake and they saw the locusts, like, knock him off the bridge. And that means that Noth described somebody in a similar situation, someone coming to save the scald. And so this is where I'm wondering if there is a script involved because this whole thing is very scripted, but it also seems like it's Noth's script. I don't think it's scripted. I think that it's just been drilled into their minds so frequently and for so long. The other thing about eating the stuff, I'm like, we established that cannibalism is is something that probably happens here. So, I mean, they're probably going to eat the body. And didn't we find that that was sort of a uh, a possible side effect of the the Wall Rider project? I think so, wasn't it? Um, yeah, Frank Monera. Along his way, still trying to get to the mine, but also now just trying to not die from this arrow shooting duo, Blake records someone who has been hanged. And when he reviews this recording, he says, She hanged herself before I could stop her. Or she didn't. No, wait, not her. He. Like, his mind is just jello. He can't even remember what happened back in time. And he's seeing things in present time that he thinks are happening in past time. It's all a jumbled mess. Like, Even if it wasn't because of the morphogenic engine, the amount of trauma that he's seen, PTSD from back in school and stuff, like, you can't blame the guy for getting all this in, a, in like, a mess and stuff. And mm-hmm. I think that's exactly what the whole reason right going back to outlast one the whole reason why you have to see so much horror is you have to separate yourself from to to save your sanity you have to disassociate and when you reassociate they're doing that and they're trying to like feed you some kind of stuff that you would have never believed in had you not seen all the horror and that's what's happening for him right now is that he is just trying to cling on to something he knows but everything is just so bad for him so he's like doesn't know if it's better to cling on to the past or the present and the reality. Okay, so that raises some interesting points and a, and a new theory for me. Because if I'm following what you're saying, or maybe even just I'm interpreting it this way, like he's mm-hmm. sort of not picking one. He's not really picking mm-hmm. reality, not really picking what happened back in time. Mm-hmm. And if Murkoff is designing this back in time things to be to give horror to people... Would that mean that their goal is to find another host for, like, a new wall rider? And if that's the case, is that why we see that thing that's on him that sort of looks like the wall rider? It looks like a ghost of the tongue monster? Is that why it's sort of around him? Is it's, like, checking him out, like, are you a good host for me? And then when it decides, no, you're not a good host, that's when it throws him. And it doesn't decide no because he hasn't fully committed to this back in time these horrible memories so he's not fully accepting all of this horror that's happened to him yet and it could that be why he's rejected as the host by the tongue monster and i think if we go with that kind of theory we have to agree that murkoff is really involved maybe not as a murkoff employee because how else do you control the situation Mm-hmm. because at the end of whistleblower we had these mention of like the four blind patients Mm -hmm. who had like exceptional 
abilities because of the Wall Rider project. So could he potentially be like one of those four? And he's still a patient, but he's a patient that they're able to sort of control and that who is maybe more powerful. But then my ultimate question is, is Murkoff looking for the perfect host? Is that what all of this is? I think there's a pretty good case for yes, because in this next segment, when Blake is looking for a rope to be able to continue on his way, someone walks near him and says, the host is ready at about an an hour, 30 minutes. Host is a word that we have heard in Outlast 1 a lot, specifically in regards to the wall rider. And this is the first time that we hear it in this game, and maybe the only time. I mean, the term host, that's pretty, like, that's pretty wall rider-y, right? It is, because how else do you use host in this context? Pretty soon after we hear this, like, the host is ready, the creepy duo is chasing Blake, and they fall from a pretty decent height, and they die, thankfully. Blake records their dead bodies, and when he reviews the recording, he says, My dad died within a month of my mom. He was perfectly healthy until she was gone, and then... Dot, dot, dot. And I have always found this commentary to be exceptionally random and off-topic, because every time that we see him talking about something that doesn't seem to make sense in the context of what we're seeing, it's about the events that happened at the school, right? After we potentially saw this tongue monster wall rider reject Blake as the host, is Murkoff now digging into his memories and trying to pick a memory that's more terrifying, more painful than what happened at the school to try to get him to become the perfect host since these school memories haven't been working yet? Are they now trying this one to see, is this one going to be the one that makes you the perfect host? But I guess if it's all about horror and trauma... What's stopping them from using any single person in that village? Because everyone's seen so much horror and trauma. Like, why not pick someone like Val or like Marta, right? Like, there's a lot of options. Why him, though? Well, that's a really good question. I'm sorry if you're going to keep going, but you gave me a great idea. We kind of had some similar questions in the first game. You know, like, why was Miles the host? Maybe you can't be too far gone as a patient. Because Mm -hmm. now we have two people who are from the outside. They're still more sane than the other people around them. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's like a perfect point of like Mm -hmm. the amount of horror versus how affected you've been by the Wall Rider project. Like maybe Mm -hmm. you have to have this horror, but you also still have to be sane enough to realize, you know what I mean? Like not, you have to experience the horror, but not be changed by the horror, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. You have to still be with it enough to transition versus... It's too late to to try to attach the wall rider or the wall rider 2.0. We're again back to the school. But after being chased by the tongue monster for a while, Blake witnesses a tree mural come to life and records this. And this is when we have the sixth reverse recording. So I will play this for you now. You let me share in the rugged path to adulthood. Those moments when a child learns those things everybody else already knows, doesn't talk about. Do you want me to play it again? Yeah, again. (laughs) You let me share in the rugged path to adulthood. Those moments when a child learns those things everybody else already knows, 
doesn't talk about. What? <laughs> so here's what I hear. You let me share in the rugged path to adulthood. Those moments when a child learns those things everybody else already knows, but doesn't talk about. And this is just me throwing things out there. The reason why they're choosing him, and and again, like our theory about needing someone to be not completely already insane, but still on their way to insanity. The, the transition from childhood to adulthood is like the transition from being sane to insane from all the torture and everything. And the Wall Rider 2.0 needs to be with the host along the way through that transition. So question for you then. Who's talking? Is this something that Murkoff created or is this Blake's memory? I think this is the morphogenic engine. No, I take that back. I don't know what it is. I don't know who's saying that. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a fair answer. <laughs> but to close this one out, Jessica beckons Blake, but then disappears into the dark. And Blake follows her voice until a flash of light reveals her still living, but hanging by her neck. And then he is shocked back into real life. Any closing thoughts on this episode for you? I think this is the section of the game where it really is the turning point for Blake. Mm -hmm. And he is experiencing so much. And if he makes it through this, Lynn probably has another shot of being saved by Blake. But if Blake can't even survive this, I mean, Lynn's on her own. Well, we were right about two hours. Mm -hmm. Next week will be much shorter. Gameplay is out. Kathy, how are you holding up? Still doing okay? Hating it. I'm okay, <laughs> but I'm hating it. I'm hating every moment of it. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. It's like, you don't like it, but I can see, like, when you're talking about the theory, it's interesting. It is. Like, that's the thing about this game. I, I let, me, let me rephrase that. I hate every moment of watching the game because... It's scary, it's disturbing and everything, but when I talk it through and not watch the videos, I'm okay with it. That's why I love this franchise, though, because you could just run through this game for, for wanting to play a horror game and be scared. But if you stop and read all the documents and stuff, it's like a whole other element to the game opens up. So I'm pretty excited to keep going. By the way, there were a few deaths in this episode. Uh, we didn't do any so longs, but... I think we can just go ahead and say that they're all uh, mother Yep, it's a group mother <laughs> We're throwing them all in the trash can. <laughs> Do you want to guess the, the number of batteries for this part? Okay, um, I feel like it was very minimal. I'm going to say eight. Okay, it's not eight. <laughs> I'm wondering, should it go up, up or down? Just hint. Up! <laughs> up? Was it really? Wait, 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 wait. This was the... <laughs> This was the hour, hour something, two hours. So I'm going to double it. 16? 19. Okay. All right. Do you want to hazard a bandages guess? Okay. I'm going to go with, I was going to do 16, but I feel like that's too high. I'm going to do 12. You're right. 12? It's 12. What? <laughs> Yay, golf clap. That's a clap that sounded... Okay. There. That sounded questionable for a second. I apologize. <laughs> All right. Yes. Anything else or should we hop off? I think let's hop off. 
Let's do Audacity on one, three, two, one. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to send in any questions, comments, or game suggestions. You can find all our contact info on our website, replayreviewspod.com, or contact us directly through our site. Did we completely miss something? Are we way off the mark? Or do you just want us to take a deeper look at anything from the game? We'll tackle any topics you all want to hear in our season wrap-up episode. We also have a Reddit where we discuss anything we're curious about. Go take a look and let us know what you're thinking. Our theme music is Condemned by Eggy Toast. They'll play you out, and we'll be back next week.